Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. But to kick things off, guys, we've got some big, big news. Now, longtime listeners will recognize the name Curtis Hughes. Uh, he was one of the show's first co-hosts and uh, brought some amazing insight from his many years in the music industry, and he is back. He has uh, rejoined the show. He'll be back here and there. Curtis, welcome back, man. It is great to have you on the team. Awesome to be here. Can't wait to get things rocking and rolling again. Let's get started. All right. All right, folks, we've gotten that out of the way. Now, on to the guest. So, following the success of his debut diesel punk fantasy, yes, that's actually a genre, author Noel Lemelson is back with the next in the series, The Lioness and the Rat Queen. Noah joins us to talk about how the story continues, and welcome to the show, Noah. Good to have you here. It's great to be here. All right. Why don't we begin by just taking us on a walk through this book, uh, where the story picks up after, after the last one ends. So uh, this one basically follows. In the first book, um, you meet the main characters, Marcel and Sylvain, and their interactions with this uh, evil tycoon named Lazarus Roach. Uh, minor spoilers. Um, <laughs> so the second book basically uh, follows them trying to track him down as he runs away into the the waste, into this kind of industrial mutated wasteland. And they're trying to uh, hunt him down, bring him to justice for complicated reasons. And of course, it's not going to be that simple. And they're forced to make alliances with people who are questionable and uh, do things that are questionable to achieve their goals. Um, you know, I want to begin by just talking about the book covers, because if folks at home, if you've seen the covers for the first book, The Sightless City, and of course, this new one, they're absolutely amazing. Uh, who did the work, and did you have to make any real input as to what you wanted? Uh, yeah, so um, the press, I, uh, Tiny Fox Press, uh, my publisher, uh, works with this company, uh, Demoza, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but they essentially um, will produce uh, covers, and they did the cover for my first book, which I thought also turned out uh, very well. And the process is pretty simple. Basically, I give them like a list of things that I think might be relevant uh, to the book, as well as kind of sample covers um, I like from uh, other books. I made like a whole list of all these kind of aesthetic samples. And they basically pick and choose and they produce something. And then we kind of go through like one or two more drafts, kind of seeing which elements. So we usually produce like one or two different versions and we can kind of mix and match the elements from there. And eventually that uh, leads to uh, what you see right there. So I mentioned the thing like the lion emblem, um, kind of the wasteland, kind of desolate environment and some other elements. And that all came together in a way I was quite happy about. Yeah, I mean, I mean, those covers are just like breathtaking. When I first saw that uh, for the second book, I was like, man, I don't, I don't even know what this is about, but I definitely like want to read it just from the cover alone. Just really hooked me in. Yeah, they do great work. Absolutely, I'm very happy about it. Curious about Noah, uh, where the where the book basically picked up as the last one leaves off. Uh, what has transpired? Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of following uh, the characters on their... They've, they've been wronged in the first book. They've been manipulated. Um, 
made to do things that they didn't realize they were doing, made deals they didn't realize they were making, um, not to get into too much details about book one. Sure. Uh, and now they're basically trying to uh, get justice or get revenge. And obviously the line between those two is uh, a bit blurry. Um, and it's following them out into the wastelands, which are the wastes. These basically these uh, mutated, twisted wastelands that are kind of the core setting i think of the whole universe that's kind of what everything is revolving around is this kind of vast desolate wasteland where there's once this thriving civilization um and to get through that they have to uh make alliances with characters who they don't know if they can trust um and do things you know that may or may not be the right thing to do i'm being very vague here but it's it's a fun mix of a kind of western revenge story with this kind of diesel punk steampunk industrial fantasy vibe you know you have to be yeah. vague though because you, of course you, you want this mm -hmm. to be a surprise and folks you definitely want to check this book out uh, Noah, i want to ask about what has happened to this world because the vibe i get right off the bat is that shit has gone down uh what is this event that has just reduced this weight that has like reduced this world to basically a wasteland yeah, I don't go into super great detail, but essentially there's this about a century before there was this calamity, essentially this the civil war that got so extreme and the weapons got more and more advanced that eventually they produced something uh, that was stronger than they realized, like essentially desolated a very large chunk of the world. Um, now, you know, you might imagine that people who have been through that might see the error of their ways and make peace, but I find often they don't. So that's kind of what happened in this book. They're kind of repeating the same mistakes that led to this destruction. And that's kind of a underlying tension in this book. Can you make peace with someone you don't like or have real uh, bad history with in order to achieve something you both want or achieve something that's for the greater good? Um, and it's a challenge, and it's a challenge that the world has failed in the past. This seems a little timely in some in in some of the themes here. Did like did like current events at all kind of inspire some of the actions that we see in the book? Uh, I wouldn't say directly. Um, I definitely themes. I think you know, growing up in this kind of the you know the post 9-11 era where there's so much fear and there's also this desperation to hold on to uh resources and the conflicts that spark definitely influenced the setting of the book um it's i try to have my factions behave in you know realistic manners that they might have these ideals and these beliefs but there's kind of a, a bottom line you know, they need they need resources, they need weapons. And, you know, if they have to choose between their ideals and the practicalities, they usually will choose the practicalities. The whole idea and premise uh, of the of the of the book and your stories is, is really intriguing. Uh, one of the things that I really wanted to ask um, during this interview was uh, the building of the worlds inside mm -hmm. stories. Uh, what what was your process with that? How did that kind of give us a little bit of insight as to as to how, what went on, you know, to to get all the the, the details and the backgrounds and everything that goes on with the book? 
Yeah. So this was a setting I built when I think I started as a teenager because, you know, that's what normal teenagers do. Um, but I, it was kind of, uh, kind of a combination of a lot of different interests, uh, science fiction, fantasy books and movies and even video games and other stuff. Um, I think I had some memories in LA kind of doing some hikes and, uh, finding these kind of ruins in the hills and just kind of being taken by that kind of like wandering through some forgotten place even you know la doesn't have that much history but we have some um and that kind of desolation but also beauty i think was part of my idea to have this kind of fantasy post-apocalyptic kind of in between um i think i could probably name a ton of different different influences um some kind of high and literary and some very much not so I think my my philosophy, I think with creativity, we have this idea that things are entirely original and they they very rarely are. But the the way I look at it, you know, if you steal from one thing, that's plagiarism. If you steal from like a hundred things all at once, then that's art, you know? <laughs> very true words, sir. Very, very true I, words. I, I couldn't have said that better myself. That's Spot on. People, take notes, okay? You're learning something today. You're learning something today. All right. Um, well, speaking of taking from multiple sources, I want to ask about the blend of styles because we have this very like dystopian setting. We got, we got, of course, advanced technology, and we got a bit of magic, too. Uh, how did you blend all these different things together to make this story? Yeah, so I, I, I love fantasy, but I'm kind of got a little tired of everything being in medieval. So I kind of wanted to have more technological advancement and I love sci-fi, but I also wanted something that allowed more flexibility. I mean, there's soft sci-fi where you can kind of do whatever, um, but more flexibility and allow myself to kind of get out there and get weird without having to ground it in reality as much. So that kind of ended up pushing things together into this sort of, turn of the century, World War One, World War II era technology, but able to go into inventive new directions through this magic system, the system uh, based on ether. Um, and my idea is there's different ethers that kind of controls different conceptual things. And the main one in this book is basically the, the ether of technology that essentially is a magic focused on technology. It allows you to kind of... Um, uh, supplement or make things that would otherwise be impossible. Um, and it's, and we, we kind of put magic and technology as very separate things, but, um, often, especially in sci-fi and fantasy, they often, their roles, you know, kind of intersect. So I thought, you know, just cut out the middleman, just make them the same thing in the setting and go from there. Hmm. So, uh, Lazarus Roach, right? That's the antagonist from the first book. Um, mm -hmm. And we see Lazarus again uh, in the second uh, book, right, for the story. So what led to the idea of keeping the antagonist around, you know, bring him into the, uh, the second part of your, your story? Yeah, it's... Um... 
it's interesting because novels transform so much in their different drafts. Um, and what actually happened with this one is initially I was just thinking of it being one book, um, which was a terrible idea, but I didn't realize that at the time. Um, and I kept writing, I kept adding to it. And um, in my initial draft, it was actually going to start essentially where this book starts. Um, that would be where the whole thing started. And then book one would be essentially a flashback. Um, but that flashback kept getting longer and longer and longer uh, until I had a writing mentor sit me down and be like, it's, it's too much. You need, this has to be multiple books. Like, don't be crazy. Um, so I did. So in some ways, it just kind of by the nature of the story, this was always going to be a one big story dealing with Lazarus Roach. Yeah, it, it let me expand the sections that kind of before I had to rush through and not give them the time they needed and were really their own stories. Um, so it definitely helped a lot. I'm very happy about how it turned out. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Uh, continuing the conversation on characters, let's talk about Marcel, because this guy mm -hmm. does not seem to be your like, you know, true blue white knight kind of character. This guy's got a bit of a shady past. Uh, what's his background and how does it kind of factor into the story of book two? Yeah. So Marcel's interesting because he's, he's, genuine in some ways but also he's trying to be something he's not always able to be and in book one you know he has this love of reading pulps and you can kind of read into him this kind of attempting to live those out without realizing that's what he's doing so in book one it's almost more of a noir where he's trying to kind of be that kind of cool collected person when really he's a bit of a mess. And in book two, he's kind of trying to live out this like, okay, I'm going to make things right by um, going out there and doing what needs to be done. Um, but he's he has a sensitive underside that he tries to hide that um, is more affected by things than he likes to let on. And because he's been put into this kind of situation that's in some ways beyond his understanding, he's been made or has chosen to do things that are morally questionable while trying to pretend he's tough enough to handle that, but it it, it does eat at him. So this seems like a to be a very like flawed character. Why did you want to go in in, in uh, that direction for him? I think in general, I find flawed characters interesting. I don't know. It's... It's there. There's a place for the person who has it all figured out and does the right thing. But I find it more interesting when you, you know, examine these tropes and think like, how how would someone actually interact with this if they're they're actually forced to do this or choose to do this? How would that affect them? And how and what kind of person would choose to do these things? And what else would that say about them? Would you say Marcel's changed much from book one to book two? Yes and no. I think he's he's learned a lot more, is faced a lot more, is willing to do things he wasn't willing to do in the past. I think he still, at his core, has certain tendencies. He does not quite always understand that, you know, a desire to see the world in kind of black and white. 
um, that sometimes uh, gets the better of him, makes him do things that were in retrospect, not the right thing. So kind of focusing on the uh, keeping on the theme of the characters, right? Um, mm -hmm. I want to just jump back, I guess, to the first book and just mention that um, in the first one, we're, int uh, we're introduced to Sylvain, right? Is that, mm -hmm. the, is that the correct pronunciation there? Because I know it's, it could mm -hmm. be pronounced differently in French. So I want to make sure I have that right. <laughs> um, so he seems a lot more than just a sidekick to Marcel, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I'm interested in kind of knowing maybe if we can provide a little bit more of a background as far as to, you know, both of them and their role uh, and the role. Sure. Story. Yeah, I consider them dual protagonists. Um, they both kind of have in book one, they both have a journey where they are manipulated by Lazarus Roach in some way. In book one, he kind of uses different weaknesses. Marcel, it's his desire to be a hero and to understand the world in a certain black and white way. Or Sylvain, and it's funny you mentioned pronunciation because people sometimes ask me about things in my book and I'm like, oh, I just wrote it, I didn't, I didn't say it. <laughs> um, as long as it's on the page, it's all that matters for me. Yeah, she's someone, she's a, a feral, which is basically this kind of humanoid species humanoid variant of human that is more bestial in features and um she lives in a society that is you know tolerant of that but not very accepting of it um and she's kind of internalized the uh bigotry she's faced and has internalized in some unhealthy ways and that's how um Lazarus Roach is basically able to offer her a path to uh the a path to using this power of engineering which in this universe is literally a, a magical power called the knack it literally allows you to manipulate things with ether and she's su uh, susceptible to that not just because she wants the power which she does but also because it's a very non-feral thing to do it would essentially to her kind of prove that everyone who said terrible things about her is wrong, which is an understandable emotion, but it also can lead her to do questionable things. All right. I want to dive a bit into the new character that we're, that we're going to meet in this book called the Lioness of Vastium, which has to be one of the coolest names for a character I've ever come across. Without giving away too many spoilers, of course, who is this person and what role do they wind up playing in the story? For most of the book, uh, in book one, we we are in the territory of the UCCR, which is essentially this mostly democratic uh, kind of nation-state alliance of nations that are against this more imperial principate, though they are more morally murky than that. But there is this uh, war a few years in the past where the principate attempted to invade. They were stopped. And one of the most important figures in that was this Lioness of Vastium, who a few years ago, you know, was potentially one of the most powerful people in the world and now has been demoted into basically a bookkeeper for uh, for her failings in this conflict. So uh, but she still has that fierceness and that violent streak and that ambition that she always had. Um, so she's a very potentially useful uh, ally, but also very volatile and dangerous ally. The lioness of bookkeeping. 
Doesn't exactly strike fear yes. into the uh, hearts of men, but you know, <laughs> I can see no. why they went with a different name. That's a good choice. All right. Uh, you know, I want to ask a bit about education. And trust me, folks, it does factor into mm-hmm. the actual book. We're going somewhere with this. You received your BA in, uh, in uh, biology from the University of Chicago and then your MFA mm-hmm. in creative writing at the California Institute of the Arts. That's a jump mm-hmm. in more way in more uh, ways than one. But what led to this switch where you said, you know what, the heck with biology, I'm going to go write. I had been writing a bit since high school and even at college, um, but I did have and still do have a love for biology. I think it's fascinating. I love kind of evolutionary science, animal behavior. I did a bunch of classes on primatology, which I do not regret doing, um, even though those aren't necessarily the most uh, economically viable paths. But, you know, I think I realized I kind of had a fifth of a life crisis where I realized I love science, but I'm just, I didn't have the kind of personality to be a research scientist. I think that's a very specific thing, um, which I don't really tell you that in school, but it requires um, either a love and dedication to like very, very, you know, specific granular questions, which I was always kind of a big picture guy. Um, I was always curious, like, why are humans the way they are? And that's a fascinating question. But often if you do research, what you're really going to look at is like, how does this chemical react, you know, receptor react to this specific condition, which is important, but it wasn't something that fascinated me. Or you have to be like really into the process of research. And I'm not the most organized person. So I was kind of thinking about all this and I started taking writing classes at uh, UCLA Extension, which is a a great program um, that anyone can join. Um, and eventually I realized that, you know, neither academia nor writing is that's reliable of a career path. Academia a little bit more, but not as much as you would think. So I wanted to just kind of go with my passion because I've always loved reading. I always, I've loved writing. I would read a ton of sci-fi and fantasy as a kid. And so I just kind of committed myself to that. And I was fortunate enough, my family helped me. I was able to go to an MFA program where I worked uh, with some great people. I studied under Brian Evanson, who, um, if you haven't read him, he's a, a, a horror, he's my favorite horror author by a, a wide margin. I think he's amazing. So yeah, that's kind of the path I took. And since then I've been doing odd jobs, teaching, hoping to do more teaching and doing my writing. And uh, I've been loving it. You say you're not the most organized person and yet you've created two real epic fantasies. Did you plot this out or was it just seat of the pants? It was semi-plotted. I tend to get the big picture stuff, the main things I want to hit and then kind of let myself figure it out from there. For me, like, I know some people can go full, you know, they say, was it uh, plotters versus pantsers? Mm. They go full, see of their pants. I I just get paralyzed when I get to that point. So I don't always plan everything out, but I plan, like, enough to know the direction I'm going. And then I kind of, from there, do kind of, like, micro plans day by day. Cool, cool. Now, did you find that the biology background, did that really factor in uh, into your writing career much? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a little bit, because it definitely, I've written some sci-fi stories that uh, get into that. I think 
a lot of it's kind of more the questions that brought me into being interested in biology uh, still kind of inform my writing is kind of how I think about it. Like my questions and just kind of human nature and what makes people tick and why the way we are and our kind of place in the universe. I think those are things that all play themselves out in my books. Um, and those are also things that brought me to biology. Excellent. Now, of course, uh, these two books are far from your only creations. You, you've also published several short fiction pieces in online magazines, such as uh, Space Squid, <laughs> Literally Stories, Silver Blade, and Allegory. Do these have any connection mm-hmm. to your current books? None of the published ones do. I've written actually a few that never made it to be published, which is probably a good thing now because I, I changed the world so much that it would be very confusing. But um, I, I love writing short fiction. I think it's it's very different than novel writing, but very fulfilling. It forces you to look at stories in a different way and also lets you experiment with more story ideas because, you know, I love writing novels, but you get like one idea, one novel that's like multiple years. Um, so it's it's nice to have another outlet. Now, at the time of this recording, we are about a month away from release day. That's the big time. Mm-hmm. You get yourself out there. You do the interviews. Do you have any plans for uh, signings, tours? Yes. So currently we have uh, one plan for a uh, kind of launch event. It's a little late because unfortunately I'll be traveling, but it'll be on September 15th at Villagewell Books um, in Culver City, which if you're not from L.A. is basically one of those cities that's basically part of L.A. Um, it's September 15th. Um, I'll be there. Uh, Brian Evanson should be there interviewing me. Um, there might be another event later in October that's still kind of up in the air. All right. And how are you with release days? Because I know some folks, they either like dive right in or they run away from it. I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens with it. I'm just like, it's going to happen either way. So I'll be there. All right. Okay. Well, Noah, we are coming to the end of the conversation. Of course, the big question is, what is next for you? Yes. So I have two projects I'm working on right now. One is, of course, book three in the series. That's still in the early stages, but it is coming along. And I'm very excited to do more for that. Going to resolve, to be clear, it's going to finish off. I'm not going to try to be George R. R. Martin, just leave everyone hanging for no no shade. I mean, he's writing amazing stuff, but um, it's I don't I, I that's not my intention to leave people hanging for too, too, too long. Um, and I'm going to do some interesting stuff in that book. Hopefully it'll work out. I'm optimistic. We'll just have to see. Besides that, I've been working on another project that's been taking up a lot of time that I do not know if it'll be published or not. It's still kind of in these kind of uncertain stages, but I'm very excited for it and hopeful. All right. All right. Well, Noah, of course, great talking to you. And again, I am thoroughly enjoying the new book. I've got the, I've got the first book, too. There will they will both be read. And uh, and and for, and for the folks at home, if you want to learn more about this great author, you go to noahlemelson.com. And certainly, uh, Noah, looking forward to the, to the next conversation. Very much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And Curtis, great to have you back, man. Great. Uh, great to have you on the show and certainly looking forward to many, many more with you. 
Looking forward to many more and hanging out with all the fine guests that you have. This is your girl, Lady V, host of the V-Line, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can find this show on your favorite podcast platforms and new episodes are added every week, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. You can get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. Whether you want to suggest a guest, submit music for the bi-weekly Blackout Collection playlist, or just say hello. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.